Hey folks, I'm over my Suki November and have my notes on Scott's final foray at the ready. Last we spoke about the British Antarctic Expedition. Scott received a telegram from Amundsen while in Melbourne, informing him of the Norwegians' intent to head south instead of north. Amundsen left behind announcements his brother released to the press as the Fram departed, but British journalists didn't pick up on the story so there was nothing more than Amundsen's brief message for Scott to go on until the Terra Nova reached Littleton, New Zealand. There, a newspaper reporter asked Scott how he felt about the race Amundsen's stated ambitions placed the British expedition in, whether they liked it or not. Confirming Scott's suspicion that Amundsen was out for the pole, and only the pole. Also awaiting Scott in Littleton, news that Mawson intended to go ahead with plans to explore the coast to the west of Cape Adair. Shit! Not only was Amundsen a danger to Scott's plan to be the first to the pole, but if he didn't beat the Norwegians, and the Australian team went home with a bunch of geography and geology to impress the various geographic and scientific bodies with, his own efforts would look third-rate. The pressure on Scott to succeed, already enough to blow most boilers, kept ramping up. For four weeks, the expedition made ready. The stores were unloaded to Littleton Wharf, checked over, augmented where found wanting, and restowed. A shipwright attempted to chase down a leak similar to that which plagued the discovery, but as with that ship, the layers of sheathing added to the hull in order to better do battle with the ice made the task impossible short of completely stripping the ship to its ribs, for which the money and time didn't exist. Pony stalls were installed at the forecastle and on deck. The decks were corked and packed solid with three sledge tractors, two and a half tonnes of petrol to make them go, and building materials for the hut. The 19 ponies, 33 dogs, camera artist Herbert Ponting, mystery man Cecil Mears, Geologists Griffith Taylor and Frank Debenham, and physicist Charles Wright, Kathleen Scott's brother Wilfred Bruce, and the Russians, dog driver Dmitry Gerov and horseman Anton Olmelchenko, came aboard. In episode 35, I recorded that Raymond Priestley was on the books from around the same time as Griffith Taylor, Frank Debenham, and Charles Wright. But it was actually when New Zealand Geological Survey paleontologist J. Allen Thompson fell ill, that Edgeworth David once more put his research scholar forward as a replacement, Priestley also joining the ship in Littleton. The crew lashed the cargo down and dogged the dogs down on top of it, chained far enough apart to preclude the fights they constantly tried to start with one another. The Terra Nova headed south, bunkering as much coal as she could carry while still remaining above the water. 425 tonnes in the bunkers and 30 tonnes in sacks on deck, at Port Chalmers. The Terra Nova sailed out of Otago Harbour on the 19th of November, 1910. The officers' wives and Joseph Kinsey, New Zealand agent to both Scott and Shackleton's previous expeditions, left the ship as they passed Tyro ahead. Kinsey spoke highly of Shackleton, as did Raymond Priestley and Bernard Day, whose experiences under his leadership at Cape Royds saw them well disposed to their former employer, causing Scott some disquiet. A ghost to work against.
Three days out of Otago Harbour, a Force 10 gale set in. The Terra Nova, heavily laden and leaking as per standard Scotland Antarctic vessel, ditched 10 tonnes of coal from among the deck cargo to try to stay afloat. A quick digression. I've mentioned the Beaufort scale in past episodes, but not really explained it. Established in 1805 by Royal Navy hydrographer Sir Francis Beaufort, the scale offers a practical means to estimate wind speed by the physical effects the wind has on the sea while at sea, or on trees and buildings when on land. Originally featuring 17 divisions, most modern references cut off at 12, all categories from 13 to 17 denoting varying strengths of hurricane and making distinctions without differences in terms of how fucked you are if you're caught outside in them. Zero is calm, wind at zero knots, sea is flat. Twelve and above is hurricane, wind at 64 knots or more, waves at or in excess of 14 metres, sea surface white with spume, air filled with spray, greatly reducing visibility. Force 10, as encountered by the Terra Nova, is a case of winds between 48 and 55 knots and waves of 9 metres, though Scott would have perceived them as 30 feet at the time. Handy little scale if you get caught out without your ammonometer, but likely hard to use at the higher end of the scale where holding onto something firmly attached to the ship is a higher priority than writing shit down. Anywho, the Terra Nova took a battering, and many of the animals had a bad time of it on deck. Apsley Cherry Garrard compared the raging sea to Dante's second circle of hell. And Scott thought the expedition had no need of a classic scholar. Pshaw! Cherry Garrard proved his mettle in the rigging, helping shorten sail while violently seasick, but felt awed in his turn, watching Bertie Bowers lead a team to the bowstrip to clue up the jib, all four men being repeatedly dragged underwater as the bow rode under the waves. The ship lowered all sail and hove to under steam. Coal dust from the deck cargo made its way into the bilges, forming sludgy balls of tar when combined with the muck already therein, and clogging the pumps. The chief engineer and ship's carpenter began a 12-hour operation to cut a hole between the engine room and the bilge pump sump through an iron bulkhead to clear the coal dust tar ball blockages. Up on deck, one of the ponies died. A wave swept the dog overboard, its chain broken by the drag, but another wave threw the dog back aboard again, none the worse for the adventure. The ponies, under some cover and close stalled, fared better than the dogs initially, who suffered regular drubbings, chained in place by their necks, one of them suffocating in its chain when it couldn't find its feet after such a swashing. Even when green water wasn't flooding the deck, the spray made the animals shiver and whine, their backs to the weather until the next wave sent them swirling once more. Bowers nearly went overboard saving drums of petrol come loose, and Oates risked his neck to check on his charges, finding another pony dead. Another dog disappeared into the waves, but without the same happy return experienced by the first to go overboard. Water nearing the boilers forced the engineers to draw the fires, and the ship was dead in the water. Bucket chains replaced the pumps in a desperate attempt to keep the ship afloat. 
smoke from an afterbunker caused the greatest concern, a crisis point in the gale. The coal and patent fuel in those spaces required regular airing to release combustible gases, but the green water regularly washing across the deck precluded any attempt to open hatches, as the ship would quickly fill with the sea and then become part of it. A coal fire is a thing to be dreaded in a ship, and I once again point listeners to Joseph Conrad's excellent Youth for a full account of the death of the Judea, London, do or die, from exactly that pernicious enemy. The LibriVox recording by Chris Hughes is particularly good and available free. It turned out to be steam, not smoke, generated as water reached the lowermost layer of hot coal drawn from the furnaces. The ship would not burn from the inside out, but they were not through the gale yet. Bertie Bowers, on the bridge with Lieutenant Campbell, saw the ship stand on its side, the free surface effect of water inside it almost preventing its writing again, and he swore that if another wave should stand the Terranova that far over again, that would be the end of it. The bucket chains, working around the clock in two hours on, two hours off shifts, held their ground and the attempt to cut a doorway in the engine room bulkhead proved successful. Lieutenant Evans crawled through, followed by Bowers, Nelson and shipwright Davies. Working in filthy water up to his neck, Evans spent 14 hours handing up bucket after bucket of the sludge until the pumps could be worked once more. Finally, the volume of water leaving the ship outpaced the volume of water entering it. They were saved, but it was a near-run thing, and it's easy to transpose this recounting to other ships that by no fault of the crew, did not pull through any one of the narrow gates of fate that Terranova somehow navigated, going down with all hands, taking their melancholy story with them. The gale cost the expedition two ponies, one dog, 300 litres of petrol, 10 tonnes of coal over the side, and more run through the furnaces, mostly to keep the ship head to wind while hove to, rather than to gain ground in running down their easting. On the 7th of December, at 61 degrees, 22 minutes south, the first iceberg appeared on the horizon, and on the 9th, the Terra Nova met the pack at 65 degrees, 8 minutes south. Further north than for previous voyages, and far from where Scott hoped to begin dancing with the ice, but after their stormy passage, all on board felt pack ice a welcome, wave-damping relief. With fine weather and mostly high spirits, the ship nosed among the floes, The officer of the watch conned from the crow's nest, shouting orders down to the helmsman as they picked their path through the available leads. Nelson used the slow progress as an opportunity to deploy plankton nets and make temperature profiles of the water column. But the pack ice of the 1910-1911 summer cost the expedition 20 days and 61 tonnes of coal, a time and fuel penalty they could ill afford. With 400 miles of ice traversed, A further 300 miles of clear water lay ahead to Cape Crozier. Scott, always shirty when delayed, bridled at this bad luck and discussed contingencies. Perhaps the plans for the Eastern Party must be discarded, or at least altered. Lieutenant Victor Campbell, slated to lead the Eastern Party, 
argued his corner, and Scott conceded that the party could be landed at Balloon Bight, making their way east over the barrier to King Edward VII land, thus saving time and coal. Campbell was less than thrilled, but this option was better than a complete canning of his project. Though this detail demonstrates clearly that Scott still thought Shackleton a liar, and that Balloon Bight still existed in the form he encountered it during his previous expedition. Cape Crozier, offering access to the Ross Ice Shelf for the Polar Party Traverse, and ready access to an Emperor Penguin colony for Wilson's research, proved impossible to reach due to pressure-ridged sea ice. A boat was put out to examine the barrier face that might be used as a staging point for a Cape Crozier landing, but the overhanging ice cliffs and heavy swell put paid to any idea of unloading the ship onto the northern side of Ross Island. Those on the oars joked about their plight should the ice cliff above them carve while they lay beneath it, but ate their words when, on the way back to the Terra Nova, exactly the stretch they'd examined let loose a huge slab of ice with a haunting cracking sound. Hut Point would have to serve. No, wait. On arrival, more ice. McMurdo Sound frozen in as far north as the Skewery a headland named for the skewer nests found on its beach in previous seasons. Ten miles north of Hut Point and offering no direct access to the barrier, the skewery would have to do, though only after a change of name to Cape Evans, to honour the expedition's 2IC. A party began levelling the ground on which to erect the new hut, and the dogs, man-hauling teams, and two of the motor sledges began taking stores ashore a distance of a mile and a half across the fast ice. The ponies joined the effort after a couple of days ashore, recovering from their close-quartered ordeal on the ship. A daily penguins, unfamiliar with all forms of terrestrial predators, came to grief among the dogs. From Apsley Cherry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World The great trouble with them has been due to the fatuous conduct of the penguins. Groups of these have been constantly leaping onto our flow. From the moment of landing on their feet, their whole attitude expressed devouring curiosity and a pig-headed disregard for their own safety. They waddle forward, poking their heads to and fro, in their usually absurd way, in spite of a string of howling dogs straining to get at them. Hello, they seem to say, here's a game. What do all you ridiculous things want? and they come a few steps nearer. The dogs make a rush as far as their harness or leashes allow. The penguins are not daunted in the least, but their ruffs go up, and they squawk with a semblance of anger, for all the world as though they were rebutting a rude stranger. Their attitude might be imagined to convey, Oh, that's the sort of animal you are. Well, you've come to the wrong place. We aren't going to be bluffed and bounced by you. And then the final fatal steps forward are taken, and they come within reach. There is a spring, a squawk, a horrid red patch on the snow, and the incident is closed. Ponting, capturing the activity with meticulous attention to his art, nearly came to grief on two occasions. Once when a runaway pony and sledge came close to flattening him, and another time when a pod of killer whales near the flow edge caught his attention. Ponting headed over to capture images of the whales cavorting, 
little realising the animals were preparing to dislodge a pair of dogs chained up near the ice edge. As Ponting set up his camera, the ice beneath his feet received a blow from beneath as a whale charged it, slamming its back into the ice edge. One after another, the whales hammered the ice, breaking it up and setting the dogs adrift and nearly knocking Ponting into the water. He retreated to safety while the whales spy-hopped to check their handiwork. The whales moved on and the crew rescued the drifting dogs, also removing the valuable petrol cache from the ice edge. Everyone suddenly very wary of the intentions and abilities of the orca. By the 8th of January, the ice between the ship and the shore was well rotten and people and ponies began putting legs through the crust. When a pony went in up to its neck, Scott ordered the last of the motor sledges lowered from the ship, but it was too late. As a team attempted to haul the machine onto firm ice, it broke through, slowly submerging, dragging the men to the hole it left behind by the hawser they held onto until the last possible moment. Everyone made for firmer ice. Pennell and Priestley trod a careful path back to the Terranova to report. On their return journey, Priestley went right through the ice and was dragged away from his entry point by a strong current. Pennell only just managed to get an arm under the ice and dragged Priestley back to the surface. The hut took shape under the care of leading shipwright Francis Davies, assisted by almost everyone, but in particular Seaman Abbott and Keohan, while they plumbed in the acetylene lighting system and arranged ventilators and the flues of the cooking range and heating stove. Completed on the 17th of January, six weeks behind schedule, the largest structure yet built in Antarctica, the hut measured 50 feet long and 25 feet wide. Nine foot high at the eaves and rising to a peaked roof, it offered generous living and working space for people accustomed to life aboard a ship, though the distinction between the wardroom and the mess deck was only delineated by walls of packing cases, separating the 16 officers and scientists from the nine seamen. The walls were insulated by quilted mats of seaweed and alternating layers of matchboard. Seaweed insulation and rubberoid sealed and proofed the roof. With an airlock porch, stables set against two of the outside walls and stores insulating a third, the interior could, even at midwinter, become uncomfortably warm. The ship was watered with the cleanest ice to hand. A stock of Waddell seals were laid in as dog food, the remnant carcasses exciting the local skewers. The shore party made ready for the summer depot journey, aiming to lay a two-week supply of food at 80 degrees south, requiring an additional two weeks' supplies to get the team that far, and another week's worth for the return journey. The autumn depot journey came to hold such importance to Scott that he countermanded Captain Oath's decision to charge Campbell's eastern party with two of the best ponies, substituting two of the weaker animals. Campbell, loyal Navy man that he was, took this on the chin, but felt the blow to his chances of success in King Edward VII land keenly. Sir Clements Markham's advice to shy from empty pole bagging, entirely hypocritical given his previous lauding of pole the goals, was ignored 
Scott's focus was narrowing rapidly. The remaining sea ice at Cape Evans began to break out on the 17th of January, and the ship anchored in closer to shore, on figurative tentalks, should the wind shift into the north and trap her on a lee shore with icebergs to windward. The Terra Nova got up steam on the 21st of January and began taking in anchors and hawsers as a strong northerly picked up. Not long after the ship worked clear of Cape Evans, a large iceberg grounded in its recently vacated space, a near miss. The Terra Nova, attempting to work out toward Inaccessible Island, went aground, Cape Evans not having been sounded and charted. A tense period spent with the engine astern and the crew running from side to side to rock the hull off its encumbrance gradually yielded positive results to the relief of all on board and those watching from the shore. Another near miss. On the 23rd, the ice behind Cape Evans began to break out. While ponies could be walked along the shore of Ross Island, south toward Hut Point Peninsula, the terrain was steep. The depot party ramped up preparations in order to risk a bolt to the barrier while some sea ice still remained. The depot party, comprising 13 men, 8 ponies, 26 dogs and 10 sledges, departed the following day. Some sledges and dogs were carried south aboard the Terra Nova under Harry Pennell's command, but the pony teams used the steep and rubble-strewn shoreline of the island to reach the Erebus ice tunnel, and after navigating the numerous shallow crevasses that glacier threw in their path, made their way down to the remaining sea ice. The Terra Nova moored up at the glacier terminus, and additional stores were transferred to the camp the southern party made that evening. On the 26th, the shore party farewelled the Terra Nova. With Mawson's intentions weighing on his mind, Scott felt eager to see the ship head north to explore the coast west of Cape Adair, following the coast as closely as possible until mid-March before returning to New Zealand. The Terra Nova couldn't afford to get trapped for the winter, as its failure to reach New Zealand could set in motion another humiliating rescue mission, an outcome Scott dreaded more than not reaching the Pole and not making any new geographic discoveries. Scott expressed anger at the state of Discovery Hut in the wake of its occupation by Shackleton's Nimrod crew. He wrote bitter recriminations in his journal, excised from the published version, about the forced entry and the resulting hard-packed ice inside, and the filth and graffiti under the eaves that met his first reconnaissance to the hut with Cecil Mears. Bloody Shackleton was nothing sacred. Good thing Scott wasn't around to see some of the disrespectful travesties I've heard of, and in one case seen photos of, occurring in that hut in the years since then. After the sledging party finished relaying their cargo to Hut Point, the sea ice they crossed blew out to sea. They could not have cut it any closer. The ponies were not working well. Cherry Garrard's charge, Guts, went through the sea ice in the crossing to Hut Point, and the team only just managed to haul him from the water. In deep snow, the ponies sank up to their chests. Only one set of pony snowshoes, contraptions of wire, leather and cane, attached to the hooves to increase the effective surface area of each footfall, came south from Cape Evans, the ponies not having trained in their use. An ad hoc trial took place on the barrier, 
and the performance of the one available set was such that Wilson and Mears were sent north with a dog team to see if they could reach Cape Evans and return with enough to go around. Too little sea ice remained for a safe crossing, so they returned empty-handed. The depot party took to travelling at night, when lower temperatures offered firmer surfaces. But Oates' early opinion of the ponies as a lot of crocs was proving correct. Some of them far older than their prime, some willful, all of them not pulling the anticipated loads or distances. Captain Oates felt tremendous pressure to work the ponies effectively, and this caused many tense encounters with Scott. Scott laid out the necessities. Oates countered with what was possible. Scott, always at his worst when frustrated by circumstances beyond his control, responded to Oates' cited problems with the ponies with anger and contempt. The dogs, on the other hand, performed well. With Cecil Mears to hand to tutor ineffective dog driving, Wilson found the experience entirely at odds with that which he remembered from a decade earlier. This time, he enjoyed working with his team and became fond of each member. With Trig Vergraun on hand to demonstrate effective ski technique, the shortcomings of the ponies might yet be overcome. The party laid a depot at the barrier edge, naming it Safety Camp, as it was clear of the sea ice and therefore immune to loss by further breakouts. 35 miles from Discovery Hut, where they turned south across the barrier, they established another depot, this being named Corner Camp. The first blizzard of the journey pinned them there for three days, rubbing in the differences in the cold adaptations of the ponies and the dogs. Able to hunker down and weather a blizzard under a layer of snow, the dogs held their form, where the ponies, supplied with rudimentary shelters of snow blocks, suffered in the bitter winds and blowing snow, losing condition daily. Grawn's pony, Weary Willie, always one of the weaker animals, fell behind the main body of the party. When Weary Willie broke through the snow crust and couldn't move, he was set upon by a dog team, receiving many wounds from the uncontrollable animals until Grawn and Mears beat them off with ski stocks and a dog stick. The sledging continued in this mould until on the 13th of February, Scott sent the three weakest ponies north once more in the care of Lieutenant Evans and Petty Officers Ford and Kiahan, hoping they might be nursed through the winter and set to task again in the following sledging season. At 79 degrees, 28 minutes south, the one-ton depot was laid, 32 miles short of its target site. Oates proposed that Weary Willie be killed and depoted as dog food, and that the remaining horses be worked to death, pushing on to the desired 80 degrees south, but Scott's visceral abhorrence of directly observed cruelty, something he never squared with his theoretical acceptance of cruelty in the abstract in mapping out his plans, and which also lay at odds with the greater cruelties contingent upon his allegedly humane decisions in the moment, prevented him accepting this option. Oates, in spite of his military discipline, spoke plainly. Sir, I'm afraid you'll come to regret not taking my advice. Scott's response. Regretted or not, I have taken my decision as a Christian gentleman. 
of course, we only have Grawn's account for these words, but they fit what I know of the men in question, and my personal opinions of the merits of both Christianity and the gentry. With the depot party laid, Scott, eager to hear news of the Eastern Party and the Terranova, joined the dog teams with Wilson and Mears, taking Cherry Garrard with him, leaving Oates, Bowers and Grawn to work the far slower ponies back to Hut Point. All the animals were exhibiting the effects of insufficient food for the work and the cold, losing condition and taking to eating their own shit for the diminishing returns available in reprocessing it for the nutrients not absorbed in the first pass. Bear grills eat your heart out. Or your own shit. Scott realised that Mir's experience with the dog teams in Russia didn't directly translate to Antarctic conditions, and the habit he taught of riding on the sledges would have to be dropped in subsequent journeys, as the dogs were losing condition far faster than anticipated. Wilson's team appearing rake-thin and ravenous in the run back to safety camp. Scott demonstrated his most admirable side when a dog team went down a crevasse. With some dogs choking in their traces and others fighting viciously whenever they swung within biting range of one another. Scott and Mears worked frantically to establish their sledge as a working platform over the gap. Some dogs could be retrieved by their harnesses, but Scott was lowered 60 feet into the crevasse on an alpine rope to rescue two dogs trapped on a snow bridge above an even deeper drop. At safety camp, reunited with Evans, Scott learnt of the death of two of the weaker ponies during a blizzard, leaving only James Pig of the three weaker animals sent back. Evans had no news from Atkinson and Crean, who returned to Hut Point early in the depot journey due to injury, and they left no note at the depot. Pushing on to Hut Point with the dog teams, Scott found Discovery Hut cleaned, but abandoned. A note from Atkinson advised Scott of a mailbag left inside, but none could be found. Scott surmised that the two headed out on the barrier with the mail, but missed the incoming party, and was ready to give the pair a tongue lashing, but when they showed up, the contents of the mailbag took all of his attention. Lieutenant Campbell reported that the Fram was moored in the Bay of Wales, the large bay that formerly constituted Balloon Bight confirming Shackleton's assertion that the barrier there floated on the sea and affirming his decision to instead base his Nimrod operation in McMurdo Sound for reasons of safety, and that Amundsen and his team had established a camp a few miles from the barrier edge and were making preparations for a shot at the pole the following summer. Amundsen's base, Framheim, lay 60 nautical miles further north than the British huts, giving the Norwegians a considerable head start in crossing the barrier when the sledging season kicked off. While Framheim lay in an area demonstrated to break out en masse, Campbell reported the Norwegians as being in good spirits and well-equipped and trained. More on this in episodes about the Eastern Party and the Norwegian expedition. For now, we're sticking with Scott and co. There was nothing Scott could do with the news of Amundsen other than fret. No change of plans could counter the Norwegian advantages in terms of distance and the earlier start they could make in the sledging season, while the Brits waited for conditions the ponies could endure. The BAE would continue as planned, 
Scott, Crean and Cherry Garrard headed out on the barrier once more to depot another six weeks of stores at Corner Camp, catching up with Oates, Grawn and Bowers with the ponies, heading on to Safety Camp and the rest of the Southern Party. Blizzards were ramping up in frequency and regular delays frayed the nerves of the humans while the ponies lost what little condition they still had. Weary Willie collapsed in his tracks, dying the following day. Scott's priority became getting the remaining ponies off the barrier as quickly as possible, and he sent them on with Bowers, Crean and Cherry Garrard, with orders to cross the sea ice direct to Cape Armitage, and from there to Hut Point. Once on the sea ice, Bowers began to feel misgivings. New ice, indicating a recent blowout and perhaps not strong enough to take the weight of the ponies and sledges, stood between them and Cape Armitage. Working cracks and then visibly moving ice flows gave his disquiet physical form. They beat a retreat to an area of thicker, better established ice and made camp, but after just two hours of rest, Bowers was woken by the sound of ice breaking and stumbled out of his tent to find the camp adrift. One of his ponies, Gus, having disappeared in the watery gap that opened beneath his temporary shelter. Bowers retrieved two sledges from an adjacent flow and, with the tent packed and the three remaining horses harnessed, began a hair-raising journey from flow to flow, making their way south towards the barrier as best they could while the easterly wind pushed the broken ice out toward open water. And then the killer whale showed up, chasing Waddell seals among the loosening pack, adding an extra element of existential dread to a situation already jam-packed with the stuff. After six hours of ice flow hopscotch, with three horses and four sledges, Bowers, Cherry Garrard and Crean found a flow stuck fast and sloping up toward the barrier edge, but after getting everything and every one onto it, found it fell short, a ten metre wide channel of brash ice and killer whales separating them from the relative safety of the barrier. Crean made his way east, hoping to find a path up onto the barrier to seek help from Scott and Co., while Bowers, Cherry Garrard and their chargers waited on their tilted flow. Behind them, the sea ice they danced across to make it as far as they did drifted out to sea. Ahead of them, chunks of barrier fell away, just to remind them that there's not much about Antarctica that constitutes more than relative safety. They spotted Crean working his way west along the barrier edge, so not all hope was lost. With Orca spy-hopping for prey just yards away from them, Bowers put his faith in God, and Cherry Garrard put his faith in Bowers. Fourteen hours after their travails kicked off, Crean appeared at the barrier edge with Scott and Oates. A berg that drifted between the flow and the barrier offered a path for the men, but not the ponies. Bowers and Cherry Garrard crossed the gaps using the sledges as bridges, but Bowers still felt determined to bring the ponies home. Oates cut a slope into the barrier edge, and Bowers made ready to cross to the flow to begin the rescue and salvage mission. But just as he was about to step out, the flow and its equine passengers began to drift westward with a cohort of attendant killer whales. With hope for the ponies lost and the barrier carving regularly, the men headed a mile south onto the ice and made camp. 
Bowers returned to the barrier and spotted three dark dots on an ice floe butted up against an ice tongue protruding from the barrier. With Scott, Cherry Garrard and Oates, he headed to their aid. While the ice the pony stood on was more closely packed than that which they'd crossed the previous day, stiffness from standing so long in place meant the first gap Bowers tried to cross saw his charge, punch, fail to land its jump, ending up in the water among the orcas. With no hope of pulling him out, Oates dispatched the animal with an ice pick. Scott managed to get Nobby up to the barrier, but Uncle Bill also ended up in the water. After fighting so hard to save them, it was Bowers who used the pick on his own horse to save it from being eaten alive by the whales. They camped away from the barrier edge and headed for Pram Point, now the site of Scott Base, where they caught up with Lieutenant Evans and co. From there, the whole party travelled overland to Discovery Hut, arriving on the 5th of March, depleted by six of the eight ponies. Bad blood, going both ways, characterised the relationships between Scott and Oates and Scott and Mears, each feeling disappointed over shortcomings the conditions in the South highlight in each of them, within their relative areas of responsibility. The hut was in good order, but with the sea ice completely out between Hut Point Peninsula and Cape Evans, no one was going anywhere soon. With old cases of biscuit and freshly killed seals supplementing their remaining stores, the 11 members of the Southern Party and the two remaining ponies settled in to wait for colder weather. While all of this played out on the barrier, the Western Geological Party were working the mountains of Victoria land under the leadership of Griffith Taylor. Originally slated to work under Herbert Ponting, whom Scott considered for the role because of his past expedition work in Asia, Taylor cut up with Scott that a geologist should lead a geological endeavour, and by the merit of his argument and the force of his personality, got his way. Departing Cape Evans on the 25th of January 1911, with two man-hauled sledges with supplies for eight weeks and instructions to collect more from Hut Point as needed, the Western Geological Party comprised Taylor, Frank Debenham, Charles Wright and Edgar Taffy Evans. The Terra Nova carried them across McMurdo Sound, landing the party at Butter Point. They depoted stores at the Ferro Glacier, before geologising and surveying in the dry valley discovered by Scott, Evans and Lashley during the Discovery Expedition, and naming and similarly characterising the Taylor Glacier, the party then headed south to survey and geologise at the Kirtlets Glacier. The party started for Hut Point on the 2nd of March, reaching it on the 14th, toting the customary sacks of rocks familiar to anyone who's worked with geologists and the basis of Taylor's new palimpsest theory of glacial valley formation. A final depot journey headed south under Lieutenant Evans to reinforce supplies at Corner Camp. The eight days on the barrier gave the team some experience of cold weather sledging, but overall, the conditions in late March reinforced that no one should be out and about that late in the waning sunlight. On the 13th of April, Scott led a party of eight north along the shoreline, facing the steep scree slopes and ice falls of Mount Erebus' lower slopes, 
hoping to find firm ice north of the Erebus ice tongue. Scott led the sledges down the Hutton Cliffs to fast ice, but deteriorating conditions saw them camp at Razorback Island, finding some relief from the freshening winds, ramping up the blizzard strength and causing the young ice to make cracking sounds. They spent two nights on the lee side of the island, safe from being blown out to sea if the ice broke out, but with only one day's food remaining. Conditions improved enough that a three-hour bolt across the ice brought the party to the safety of the eastern shore. But Scott's eagerness to return to Cape Evans before the sea ice grew thick and fast enough to mitigate any danger of being blown out to sea drew one of two criticisms Griffith Taylor later made of his leader, the other being the owner's disdain for dogs as a means of transport. Scott got away with the crossing, but the example of Aeneas McIntosh and Victor Hayward Members of Shackleton's Ross Sea Party, who died when blown out to sea while making the same trek in May 1916, demonstrates Scott's success in this venture was not guaranteed. Those at Cape Evans had little to report other than the death of the pony Hackenschmidt, thought to have died of an excess of orneriness. Thomas Clissold cooked a huge meal for the returnees, and at ten that night, they set off a rocket flare to indicate their safe arrival to those at Hut Point, who received the news with great joy and responded in their turn with a piece of paraffin-soaked tarpaulin, set alight and thrown in the air. Back at Hut Point, the seven men left to care for the animals spent a quiet week, other than a trip to safety camp to retrieve more fodder for the ponies. A relief party from Cape Evans arrived on the 18th of April, but before preparations for the move north could come to fruition, the sea ice around the Hut Point Peninsula blew out again. Instead of waiting for a refreeze, on the 21st, everyone headed back to Cape Evans by the Hutton Cliffs, as per the earlier trek north. The 23rd of April saw the last sunset at Cape Evans for that season. The winter routines at Cape Evans mirror those of the discovery a decade earlier. Mostly convivial, busy with scientific observations, writing, make-do and mend. Scott, frustrated by inaction and fretting about the Norwegians, vacillated between approachable, curious and shirty, as in the previous winters at Hut Point. Almost everyone caught the sharp end of his tongue at some point, but Mears and Oates seem his particular whipping boys, forming a close friendship under Scott's opprobrium. Scott, disappointed by the performance of the dogs on the depot journey and of the motor sledges in unloading the Terra Nova, came to place greater and greater emphasis on the role of the ponies in the polar gambit. Oates felt the success of the effort increasingly rested on his own shoulders and, given what he'd seen of their performance, this unsought responsibility only deepened the tensions between Oates and Scott. Simpson, aided by Bowers, launched meteorological balloons, and those data loggers retrieved, usually on relatively still days when the slow-burning fuse burnt through and dropped the instruments before the whole rig disappeared into the distance, recorded the presence of a temperature inversion over the region. The geologist pored over their samples and cartography. Ponting worked in his darkroom, and Cherry Garrard revived the South Polar Times. The dogs and ponies received their share of exercise and maintenance, though Scott never took full advantage of the presence of Trigvagrorn. 
taken south as a ski instructor on Fritjof Nansen's advice. Scott, having witnessed and been impressed by Norwegian skiing efficiency during his preparations for his second Antarctic expedition. Graun happily helped anyone interested in skiing become proficient, but Scott never required his team to take the matter seriously. British pride in remaining amateur infiltrated many spheres of activity in the Empire, but it would cost the Polar Party dearly that not everyone involved was able to use skis effectively. Evening concerts and magic lantern presentations of Ponting's adventures in Asia interlaced with thrice-weekly lectures on scientific or expedition topics. The gramophone got a workout most nights, and a pianola provided another musical distraction, though only Cherry Garrard and Debenham could do much with it beyond the library of punched paper recordings on hand to run through its mechanism. Regular soccer matches provided both exercise and entertainment. And all the while, Clissold turned out food in volume sufficient to keep people operating in the cold, and with variety sufficient to stave off boredom. Between midnight and the 7am turnout, one of the officers or scientists held the night watch, keeping the fires lit, updating the aurora log, checking on the animals, and keeping to Simpson's meteorological measurement schedule every two hours. Brief jaunts to Hut Point and Shackleton's hut at Cape Royds kept people in sledging fettle, but the denizens of Cape Evans scored a significant first in Antarctic exploration during the winter of 1911, the first long-distance winter sledging journey, driven by Dr Wilson, robbed of his opportunity to study nesting emperor penguins when ice precluded establishing winter quarters at Cape Crozier. I think we'll leave it there. This expedition's getting a lot of coverage, in part because they did a lot and were there for a long time, in part because there are so many books available and I've read so many of them and know this story so well, so very grimly well. Next week, I'll cover the worst journey in the world, followed by the polar foray. Competition time. I have a copy of South Pole Odyssey, Selections from the Antarctic Diaries of Edward Wilson, edited by Harry King. Up for grabs, for the first listener who can send me some form of evidence demonstrating that they've been listening to iced coffee below the circle. It's a slim volume, and Wilson's fairly laconic compared to, say, Apsley Cherry Garrard, but it's a lovely book featuring some colour plates of Wilson's watercolour paintings made on site in Antarctica, and they're just gorgeous. Shout out to Michelle, who's one of the longest standing listeners to Ice Coffee, who assures me she's still enjoying the series. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm-hmm.